This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook, and at trevorjamesflutes.com. Hello and welcome this week to Talking Flutes with me, Jean-Paul Wright, and sat opposite me. Yes, we're back again. Hi, Claire. Hello, Jean-Paul. We're back. This is your podcast this week. I've been hogging the airways, haven't I? You, you have a bit, yeah, but we're, we're back here and we've got lots of lovely questions from our listeners, which we're going to try and answer as best we can. And um, Good luck. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been doing during the summer, Claire? Oh, heck. Waiting for the summer. <laughs> Waiting for the summer. Here in England, we we seem to have, have missed out on on the very nice weather. But the Medi- in the Mediterranean, of course, they've had the most terrible uh, heat waves. Of course, so mm. we wouldn't want that either. We would like something in the middle. But anyway, the sun is shining today. Always is down here. Yeah. And I understand you're getting another doggy. Uh, we, we are getting another dog. Another one. Yeah, another one. We have two golden retrievers, as people listening to the possible <laughs> know. They've heard them enough times. Uh, Pete and Minnie. And we're now getting Louis. He's another golden retriever, a rescue from Turkey. Oh. Two years old. The house is going to be manic. How do you think the two will take to Louis? Um, I think uh, Pete will be very happy to have a friend, mm-hmm. and Minnie will sort him out. <laughs> Isn't that every woman? Every woman no, sorts steady, out every man. Steady, steady. <laughs> In the dog world, <laughs> uh, oh, I, she will sort him out. Oh, but just be bringing more love and the fact that she's a rescue. You're doing your bit. Yeah, doing for, our bit. For the animal world. And we'll need a new hoover because there'll be so much hair flying around. Yeah, do you ever allow them upstairs or are they downstairs? Yes, yes, they're upstairs. Are you, you give them free reign? Free reign, of course. I think that's interesting because we, we don't let mouse upstairs. That's very disciplined. Is it? Yeah. I'm actually doing something that's disciplined. Yeah, you're very disciplined. Yeah, no, <laughs> our dogs have free reign. Um, thank you for the coffee. Should we jump straight back in, straight in? Because yeah. this is, after all, a Talking Flutes podcast. So you jump in. You have the list right. of questions. Right, the first question is what's the best place you've ever performed in and why? I found that so difficult to answer. Mm. There have been so many wonderful venues. I, you could say, you know, from fabulous cathedrals to intimate change, chamber rooms, outside on floating stages, uh, to castles, stately homes. So it's very, very difficult. And sometimes it's the, the occasion of the concert which makes you feel that that's the best place as well, rather than the actual place mm. itself. So it depends on the occasion, what the concert is, and what you're doing. But I will pick one. Oh, And I'm going to pick the Wigmore Hall in uh, London. Ah, yes. And that's because it's an absolute gem of a, of a concert venue. Uh, it's very traditional. It's small. Um, it's a very intimate sort of setting. Fabulous acoustics. And you feel that you have a connection with your audience. So they don't feel far away. You feel that they're almost within touching distance. 
But just being on that stage, it's a beautiful small stage with uh, brass railings on the outside, mm -hmm. and um, it's just beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Did you do a recital there? Yeah, yeah. That's very mm -hmm. special to be invited to do a recital at the it, Wigmore. It's very special. It's a very, very special place. So that's my that's my pick. Of all the places and all the venues that you've done in your career, you choose the intimate Wigmore Hall. And I, do you know, I get it. For me, I'm going to go exactly the same, but not Wigmore Hall. It's a cathedral in the north of Spain, in a place called Hacca. And I played the Iber Flute Concerto in this place. And the middle movement, when I was playing, I actually felt the hairs on my back of my neck coming up because the sound was bouncing back. Yeah, how lovely. And it was just, ah. Oh. And it wasn't my flute playing because anybody can sound great in a cathedral. It was just something magical. And even now, as I'm thinking about it, when we're talking, this was in 19... Oh, cracky, 1988, 89? A long time ago. Were you at school I, then, John Paul? <laughs> I'm 60 next year. I'm not a pup anymore. <laughs> but I can still feel that there is a time in your life when you play where something happens. And it, as you exactly, you said, it could be on a big... It could be the Albert Hall. It could be the uh, Carnegie Hall. I mean, it could be the Sydney Opera House. Anywhere that you've played. But something makes a certain performance magical. And for you, Wigmore Hall, because music's about... Um, it's about conveying a story to a narrative to an audience and Wigmore Hall is a perfect place to do it but it doesn't take prisoners um, because if you're going to do Wigmore Hall there's always a there's always a reviewer there isn't there there's always there is. the press is there for me it was very different it was about yeah okay it's me very selfish actually but it's the one and only time I've, I've ever played the e-bear and all of you listening to this know that the e-bear is made up of three movements the hardest for me is the middle movement because the middle movement is slow and it is beautiful and it is gorgeous and there's nowhere to hide first and last it is just notes lots of little black uh, blobs on sticks and you're flying around and if you know your scales and claire's spoken so i'm going on here and i claire's spoken over the last couple of years we've been doing these podcasts about the necessity to understand your scales do oh, just hit the microphone doing your scalar exercises doing all your studies if you do that, you can have facility. But what you can't get is that is that you have to practice on your sound because this is the sound that makes you unique. And I'm telling you nothing new here because Claire's already said this many, many times, is you, you are your sound, and that's why you shouldn't try and copy other people. So for me, going back, in my head, I played this wonderfully. Now, that may have... <laughs> you think all, all these years have gone, all this water's gone under the bridge. And it may not have been as beautiful as I remember it, but I don't care. I'm in this little world. So Hacker Cathedral in Spain was the best place I've ever played. Lovely. You see, and it's good to have those memories, isn't it? Yeah, but it's funny how memories sort of change, don't they? They sort of... Um, we, you can have a memory, and then over the years, that memory sort of gets moulded as how you want to remember that. Possibly. I think the, the two examples we've given have been of performances where the pre-concert, in terms of all the work involved for the months beforehand, knowing it's going to be a big occasion, also helps this memory of it being something very special. Yeah. Rather than, you know, a, a, a Saturday gig in 
in Grimsby, of which yeah. I did quite a few when I was up north. <laughs> and uh, it would be doing it with the, the local uh, choir, and you'd be a, you'd have a scratch orchestra, and you'd you'd arrive at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon to, to rehearse Verdi Requiem, three-hour rehearsal, concert seven thirty on the bus home, and that was obviously very special for the choir, but wasn't very special for the orchestra. Parts it's nice to play the music, of course, mm. and it's and it was work, but it didn't have special meaning there are lots of other places that that do but it is difficult to pick it is and i would never have chosen a cathedral just because once you start playing there's a there's a reverberation that ends up coming back and it's really quite hard to sort of keep that focus mm. because that sound becomes quite jumbled doesn't it yeah yeah but for me there's just some, something magical and, and serene about that middle movement because it's so pure isn't it and the space for you to hear it. Yes. Whereas in the fast movements, there is no space to hear. And it's, it can get quite complex, the listening, because of the reverberation. Yeah, I worked on the fact that it was a no-lose, because no one would know if I was playing the right notes, because what was bouncing back <laughs> would have been hitting the notes I was playing then. But that middle movement is the one that... Um, and that, that will always be my favourite one piece of music, hmm. because of that one memory. Yeah. And the, the D-flat was in June. Was it? Yes. <laughs> there was some, uh, uh, it was a harmonic D-flat, but as, as you know, but it, for me it was, it was in June, and I don't think I'd ever played it in June since. <laughs> so sure that's why I remember it. Well, that's, that's a good start, John Paul. Great, brilliant. Um, second question. Oh, right, yes. I'm not sure who this is from, because you've put anon, but <laughs> uh, thank you for the question, whoever sent it in. I've suddenly started struggling when I know I'm being recorded. This can either be either on a smartphone or at a concert or when I'm in the studio. How do I get over this? So it's it's interesting. I think it's a problem that that many players have, you know, the red light syndrome. And it happens to all of us in a recording studio when that red light goes on. Mm -hmm. As soon as it goes on, there's like a different atmosphere, isn't there? One of expectation... And the silence when that light goes on, it, it's almost deafening. It's a very different atmosphere once the red light's there. Really, the answer to controlling your problems has to be in your preparation. So I think it's, it's a case of what you do before you're in that uh, recording situation rather than in the recording situation. Now, there's a story which we, I might have told before on talking flutes, but in my college days, I remember there were quite a few singers that carried around with them a microphone, just a microphone not attached to anything. And they would place the microphone in the practice room on the piano. And so I say, it wasn't attached to any electrical equipment, it was just a purely a visual aid to help them perform. And when they'd sort of warmed up and were ready to sort of sing something, they would flip the switch on the microphone so they see the little red patch. Do you remember on... I mean, yes. do, they still, do you still have them on They still have on and off, yes. Yeah, it's an on-off, isn't it? Yes. So again, it's not attached to anything, but they'd flick the switch and that visual aid would mean they're in performance mode. So I, I've frequently recorded sessions of my practice throughout my career because um, it's always been such a great learning tool. I actually did record myself, though. I didn't just have the microphone with the not attached so I needed to actually hear the recording back and it it helps you be aware of things that you do well as much as things that you don't do well 
which I think is important because musicians are generally they can be very negative and think the worst you know that this didn't you, you talk to people when they come off stage oh I didn't do that so well I didn't do this so well rather than no one comes off the stage and goes, I nailed that. <laughs> they, they just don't do it. I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely the same. I remember after performances, if only I'd done this or that, probably the audience has, has never noticed it. I'm, I'm, I guarantee the audience won't notice when you, when you make little slips. What I'm saying then, if, if you get used to recording yourself regularly when you practice, then when you actually do get to recording, it's shouldn't feel too different to that time. And when you listen back to your practice recordings, don't listen back immediately. Wait a few days so you can be objective about it. Because when you've just recorded something, it can be too much sort of in your ears and you're thinking about all different sorts of things. It's best to leave it for a day or two. Then you can listen with a much more objective ear. I'm going to be very honest and say the first time I ever played live on the radio, I weed myself. I was that nervous. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> I a felt, horrible image. It is. I don't really want that image. <laughs> I felt the trickle going down my leg. Uh, I, no, I, was, I was actually terrified. I was fine in rehearsal. I knew exactly right. Something happened when that red light went on and it just said live. And it was live radio. Friday night is music night. And it was on a Friday night. It was just sort of something, a, a show that was for older people. And yeah, I'd sort of weed myself. <laughs> you just reminded me of something. Oh, have there's you a, done it? There's, no. There's, the BBC Concert Orchestra does yeah. Friday Night is Music it Night. It does, yeah. And I remember when I was, I was uh, playing with them, principal flute, and I'd never done a Friday night. My, uh, the, 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 the piccolo player said to me, you've not done one of these before. I said, no. I said, but we've got a rehearsal, haven't we? He said, it's not a rehearsal as you know it. <laughs> and it wasn't. No. You'd literally pick a couple of pieces, play a couple of bars, and then you wouldn't play anything else. And it's just for it, a sound check, isn't it? It's just for sound check. And I'm thinking, I don't... And you hadn't had the music beforehand, so you didn't even know what you were playing. And it wasn't classical music, it was uh, light music. Yep. And um, he, in the rehearsal, he kept... I was sort of trying to look through music. He said, no time, next one, next one. Next one. And totally panicked, very, very nervous. And so that was in the rehearsal, suddenly feeling very out of my depth. And then, of course, Friday night, red light's on, it's, it's, it's a live recording. And the same thing. You have to just be totally focused. You just have to do your best. It all went fine. Because, in fact, it wasn't particularly difficult but it was the rehearsal, the speed of it, that made mm. me so nervous. And there's an audience, and there's an audience coming over the top of the uh, recording studio area at the bottom. Mm. It's like the Muppets, isn't it? When you go in for rehearsal, there's the mm. curtains closed, and then you. Well, this was a hall. This was actually. Oh, you're in a hall. Friday night's music. They used to go to different venues around the country. So it wasn't in that studio in Edgware. Um, I did one there, and I did one outside. So they'd used to go to various halls oh, around the country. And you'd have your your a full audience. Ah. Um, and it was yeah. I mean, it's it's exciting in terms of it's it feels very fresh, and it's different music. It's lovely melodies, but you just have to be on your toes the whole time. And I was it, you feel totally exhausted at the end of the concert. But I like what you said about you need to get used to recording yourself 
because once you know you've put that switch that recording machine on the iPhone or Android or portable recording machine then you're in recording mode and then when you go into a studio or you go into a radio or whatever it is you're used to being in that recording mode aren't you absolutely and, and you know when when we were at college we didn't have mobile phones you didn't have access to equipment I had a a setup in my house where I could record onto um it was a cassette player it wasn't even a, oh, a yeah, disc crikey. it was cassettes <laughs> and of course the quality was was awful but at least it was it, I could listen back to something and I think if you, I like you're saying if you're if you're regularly recording yourself in your practice, it's not a big deal when you're recording for somebody else. It doesn't feel such a big deal because you know what you sound like. Yeah. And then you have to, you, it develops your self-awareness and it develops your confidence because you know what your abilities are. Do you remember cassette tapes when the, the tape used to come out and you used to have to get a pencil? A pencil and, and tighten <laughs> it up. Yes, I do very well. Yeah. How times have changed. I still have a lot of my original recordings on cassette tapes, and I keep meaning to get them. Oh, transferred uh, over. Transferred. Yeah. I did one that we, uh, uh, we I did a podcast uh, mm. about bamboozle. Yes. A few months ago, and that was the recordings were all on cassette, which was thirty years old, maybe thirty-five years old, and we had it put onto a disc. So the quality is not tremendous, but it's. You, you know, you can hear what's happening. Great days, bamboozle days. It was like the Spice Girls of the flute world in that era. We were, actually. Yes, yeah. Yeah. yes. When, on the same, it's on the same sort of thing, I suppose, is that all those years ago, when you were going through music college, when you've, you, weren't, you weren't taught anything about controlling your nerves or anxiety, were you? you it was just you can either do it or you can't. I when don't you, remember. When you first went into LSO you know, one of the world's most famous orchestras. What was it like to sit down in that when I, you hadn't was, been trained on anything? I was absolutely petrified. First of all, when the... I remember the, um, the orchestral manager rang me up. I didn't know him at the time. Wanted to book me. I thought it was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, you know, I got there. That was at a time... It was in the Barbican. Peter Lloyd was principal... There were, at that very first time, there were no women in the orchestra at all. There were two or three ladies in the string section, but they weren't there on that first time I went in. So you're the only female I was there. the only <laughs> female in the orchestra. And um, it was... I felt totally alien in that environment. It was very much sort of a, a boys' club. If you look at the LSO now, I mean, they've just been uh, do they've just been on the television with, mm. on the proms. It seems to be more women than men. Yeah. I mean, the, the the mix is 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 very much more balanced now. But in those days, it, it it wasn't. It was very frightening, and the only thing that made it less frightening was the fact that Peter Lloyd was so wonderful. Mm. He he made you feel very welcome, and so the the, the flute section sort of really helped you. They sort of kept with you and made you feel that you're part of a, that, that little family of <laughs> flutes. So I'm just trying to think, the, the correlation between how you must have felt going in to an orchestra that didn't have women in it and sitting down with the London Symphony Orchestra to this person that has said that they struggle when they switch, a microphone is switched on. Similar correlations, obviously from different extremes, but it all comes down to that base point of 
knowing that you can do what you can do? You have to be confident of your ability and don't lose sight of that because you've arrived at wherever you've arrived because of your ability. Mm. And you, you need to, you know, in these situations, you have to draw on your own experiences and try and keep calm in, in sort, of, sort of extreme circumstances, you know. And then once you've done it once, the next time is not so difficult. And you always found that, didn't you? Once you've done it once... Okay, so when you've done something once and you haven't performed, as you say, no, I don't know anyone like just like like you've just said that's come off stage and say, "Oh, I nailed that." It's very different to being an athlete where you know you've nailed yeah, it. Yes. So when you've come off stage or off a recording and you've played something, and in your head you can just remember the bits that you didn't do as well. The next time you come to play that, do you remember that part that you didn't play as well? Do you regard that piece or that experience negatively? Or do you try and use it as a learning experience and say, no, I'm going to hit it next time? I think generally I, I always put it out of my head. Oh, well. Wow. So it didn't really happen. Because the thing is, when you've really worked hard at, to prepare for something, you can play it. I mean, I, I didn't tend to play pieces... I'm talking about in my professional yeah, career. Absolutely. I didn't tend to play pieces that I couldn't play. Mm. So if something, and, and we're all human, things go wrong, but that's that's just life, and not not many people will notice. So the next time, it'll it'll that bit will probably go right, and maybe something else slips. You just don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. No, when I've heard you play recitals, you always play complicated stuff, and you will know whether what you've done is how you wanted it to be but you've you just say what you do is you say it's done and yep. you just don't live in anything that may have gone wrong in your head because as you've already said chances are no one's going to notice no and also it's live performances it's what what's wonderful about a live performance if it's not recorded is that you can go and do it again and it'll be it'll be different and with you'll be communicating something different different emotions you just reminded me of a, another funny story about um, things going wrong or, or things maybe you can't play. I, I was in a, a contemporary chamber music orchestra, small small orchestra, sort of uh, single winds, single stri- strings. And we were in the Abbey Road studios recording some new music. And it was what we used to call squeaky gate music yeah we all know that yeah yeah so there wasn't much you could latch on to mm-hmm. and the one of the composers we don't we, we, we were in the studio for a few days but one of the composers hadn't quite finished writing we'd finished one day sort of about seven o'clock at night and we were due in nine o'clock the next day so I said remember abbey road in london and i had a good hour and a half commute in and then seven o'clock that night the composer came in and said oh, i've I've, I've just finished, this is what we're doing tomorrow morning, first thing. And he panned in my part, and it was basically piccolo. And it was all in the third register. And it was all, like, hemi-demi, semi-quavers, in the third octave. <laughs> and I said, I remember saying to the conductor, I don't think there's any way at all that I can learn this for nine o'clock tomorrow morning. And... He very kindly said, well, you just have to. Oh. Yes. So came back nine o'clock the next morning. It was, I said it was impossible. 
So you know, I just, I remember just playing lots of notes in the third octave, very fast. And afterwards, I made it up. And the composer thanked me afterwards. So they didn't, they, they, they didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it was an effect, I think what he wanted was an effect, okay. something a little bit wild and manic. And it, it was because I was so on edge about the whole thing. But um, yes, it's interesting. Sometimes your um, other things take over. And you, I mean, I, I hated not playing things right, but in this particular occasion, I just didn't have a choice. That's interesting, isn't it? hating not playing things right. I, uh, I always, I always want to. Did you ever take liberties? Play right. I want to play the right things. Do you ever take liberties with a piece? Uh, uh, liberties are something slightly different. I don't like going wrong. Oh, got you. I like to. I'm, I'm quite a perfectionist in in what I'm doing, but there will be liberties within that. Mm-hmm. But this particular occasion, I just made it up because it was impossible to play what was there because you couldn't even read the notes. They were so small, you couldn't. And they, you know, about you know six ledger lines up, and I just couldn't couldn't see. So it was it was a case of uh, sink or swim. So I swam, but with different things. So it's method in the madness with that one. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we digress. We digress. We does. But I think the bottom line is is it. Just get record yourself all the time and just become used to that recording button going on. Yep. Great. Right, Claire. I think we've you know we could keep going. We have we have this big long list, and I'm sure there's there's been this. Uh, we, we both understand with uh, podcasts is that I end up doing long ones, and you do the shorter ones, which is what people actually want. And when I look through the analytics, a lot of people actually turn off the podcast and then revisit it after about 30 minutes because I think people either listen to it in the car or on a commute. And I think for these ones, we'll try and keep them to around about 30 minutes, nice and short and sharp. See how we go from there. And if I people think it's a good idea. And if people want longer ones, just let us know. If you want even shorter ones, then let us know too. You know, we're here for you, aren't we? We are, but also trying to keep the variety, aren't we? So that we have uh, sessions like this where we're answering questions, and please keep sending them in because um, we really like them. And then we have sessions where we're talking to other people. Yep. I'm hoping to do a sort of a, a teacher's corner where we're talking about specific aspects of, of flute playing in the coming year. So that'll be something different as well. And if, if any of the listeners, if you have any other ideas you'd like us to do, then do write in. Yeah, please do. And on that note, wishing you all a wonderful week. Thanks to Claire for inviting me down. And may your week ahead be musically fulfilling and your low C sharp especially in tune. Bye-bye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.